Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This is part two of a two-part message given by Pastor Eric Ludy at the church at Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. It is our hope and prayer that this message would convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers and receive feedback. Simply contact us at info at ellerslie.com or give us a call at 970-686-9022. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Let's uh, begin session two. Remember how I said we're going to go through two key attributes to prayer? I've actually given you more attributes to prayer. I'm sort of sneaking them in around the edges. For instance, persistence in prayer and endurance in prayer, typically in Christian history called importunity, is of grave and great importance. And I I gave that. It's just I didn't make it a huge point. Uh, But in the last one, we were talking about the ask. The ask is based on who we're asking. We are not just randomly asking for anything. We're asking in accordance with God himself. And when we are in agreement with the word of God, we live. And that's what it means to have faith in Christ Jesus. We agree that the revelation of scripture is true in what it says about this man who came to live, that he is tested by the messianic tests of the entire old covenant, and he has proven himself perfectly in agreement. Every prophecy that has ever come forth out of his lips was indeed fulfilled, and those that still have not yet been fulfilled will be fulfilled, and they, they, they involve the future. But this man is, in fact, Emmanuel, God with us. He has done it, and he will continue to do it. And we put our confidence in him. And when we believe and agree with the word of God, by faith, we live. And the substance of that man's life actually changes us. We are made new. And so session two is another dimension of how prayer works. I, I struggled with naming this one. This is, this is a hard one to know how to encapsulate and articulate. The superintending father. Superintending just sounds like some... Uh, school term, you know, like the superintendent of the schools. But superintend means to be over and above and to encompass something and to help something along. And so it's a very difficult mental picture to know how exactly to share, but that's what we're going to talk about here. The superintending father. Praying even when you don't have a clue how to pray. See, one of the things that can oftentimes stymie our prayer is that we actually don't know what to do with the shovel sometimes. It's like we know we're supposed to be digging, but we don't know where to dig, how to dig. We don't know exactly what to do. And so we have this almost sense of lostness, like we're missing a compass in our soul in regards to what to do. We know that this is nuclear power. We know that his answer is yes and amen. What do I pray? I don't even know what to pray. And so especially when you have Elijah coming up to you and say, ask me. And you're like, I don't even know what to ask. I don't even know what I need. I I know I have a big job, but I don't even know what I need to accomplish that big job. And so if any of you fall into this category of saying, yeah, that's exactly right. No wonder I'm having a tough time praying. I don't even know what to be praying. Well, that's why this is important. Because when you start dealing with prayer, a lot of us think that certain people just have prayer all figured out and they have it all down and they know exactly what to pray. Prayer lists actually have tremendous value. I, I use lists a lot in my life. However, prayer 
goes deeper than a list. Prayer is availability to God to pray what he is praying. We call them God prayers. I know it sounds strange, God praying? God doesn't pray, doesn't talk with himself. Well, there's three parts to the Trinity. And in fact, he does. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Romans 8.26 has to be classified as one of the most mysterious verses in the Bible. And yet it's in the midst of some of the most important substance that changes our life. Romans 5, 6 through 8 is like the machinery of how Christianity triumphs in this earth. And so we have this picture of prayer and it's in a sort of cloaked in mystery. And so I would like to spend some time sort of unlocking this. But let's first start with the intercession of Christ because in Romans 8.26, it says the Spirit himself makes intercession for us. So who's actually interceding here? And what is intercession actually about? Well, intercession in the most simple form is to stand in a gap. And so I always like to use the illustration of the bullet flying and then you have the helpless victim over here that is innocent and unjustly being shot at. And so you are the mysterious third party here that sees the danger, sees the vulnerable, and steps in front and takes the hit yourself. To intercede, to stand in the place of, to stand in the stead of something. And so the Spirit himself stands in the gap for us. It's more than that. And that's why I'm going to unlock this word intercession for you, because actually this word in the Greek where it's translated intercession is actually different than a lot of the other uses of the word intercession in the New Testament. So the intercession of Christ... Christ stood in our place. That's what the cross is. And yet, it actually says that Christ continues to intercede for us. Isn't that strange? So not only did he stand in our place on the cross, and he bore our punishment, our guilt, the wrath of God is satiated in him, in his work, yet, at the same time, he still makes intercession for us. It says, it is Christ who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. Then it says, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, speaking of Jesus, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. He ever lives to stand for us, to advocate for us, to enable us to the end that he's called us to. That's a very important scripture, and I feel like I'm doing you a disservice by pushing click on this. However, that's not the point of what I'm trying to teach you today, and so let's keep moving. Here's a really awkward word, and it's a very hard one to pronounce. Intuchano, and you have to do the chich sound, otherwise it's not official. Uh, so, intuchano. And this is the word typically translated intercede or intercession. And so it's to pray, to entreat, to make intercession for another. So when it's talking about Jesus Christ making intercession, this is the word, intuchano. And yet I want to introduce you to an even bigger, more uh, awkward word than that. So let's go back to entuchano and just take a mental picture of it. Because even after the message of I challenge, we had a spelling bee on that one. I say, spell entuchano. You know what? That is, I mean, some of you now are all over that. You're like, I got it. Uh, But if I hadn't said that, you, you might not have been able to do it. So there's that word. Now look at this word. See if you can figure out what's the difference between those two words. 
there's a little chunk added to the front end of entuchano, and it's the word hyper. Okay, now, for most of us, when we think of the word hyper, we think of a little boy with too much sugar. Uh, he has more energy than the rest of us. And there's a part's truth to that in the word hyper in the Greek, because that's where it comes from, but it means something a little different than most of us would oftentimes conclude. It means the shadowing, superintending, paternal intercession of a stronger party for a weaker. See, intercession is sort of standing in the gap, but hyper, or hooper, hooper entuchano, is this concept of overshadowing to enable something to happen. Okay, like, uh, say it's uh, putt-putting, and, you know, little Hudson is, is trying to, he's really frustrated because he can't uh, hit that ball where he wants it, and so Daddy who is better at putt-putting, overshadows him, fixes his grip, and says, straighten your legs. And then I pull back the mallet, yet who's putting? It's actually him. What scorecard is it going on? It's going on his scorecard, yet who is overseeing the process, actually lending his ability to putt-putt to someone weaker? It would be daddy. And that's the superintending father. And that's actually what this word would mean. It's a very, very hard word because it's such a visually filled word. It's a metaphorical word of that which overcomes and enables, and yet it's still Hudson putting. Hudson's hands are on it. Who gets the credit? Who, you know, who do we cheer for when the ball goes in? We don't cheer for daddy. We cheer for Hudson. Yay, Hudson! And Hudson could say, uh, actually, as he, as he gets a little crown, takes it and throws it at the feet of daddy and says, actually, it's daddy who did the putting, right? That's the kingdom of heaven right there. Who does the putting? It's the impossible hole in one. And yet, unless you hit it in one, you're out. I can't do it is the beginnings of great Christianity. I can't, I can't make that shot. And so he says, you need some help, don't you? And so he, hooper and tuchanos. And he says, straighten the legs. There you go. All right. And our, his hands are over ours. He pulls it back. says, ready? Kunk. And he pulls off the impossible in and through our life. Who made the putt? Well, I mean, you, you, you sort of did, but you couldn't have done it without his hooper and tuchano. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes hooper and tuchano. For us with groanings which cannot be uttered. How do you pray? How do you make that shot? You actually need something deposited. You need grace. You need the Holy Spirit. You see, you can't pray as you ought to pray any more than you can make that one shot and putt putt. You see, you need something to help you. Most of us don't realize that prayer, true prayer, that changes the world history is not just done by us, even though it is done by us. It is done by the Holy Spirit in and through us. The hyper work, or the hooper work, of the Spirit. On behalf of, see the word hyper in the Greek is going to mean this, on behalf of, for the sake of, over, beyond, more than, more, beyond, over, one who does a thing for another, is conceived of as standing or bending over the one whom he would shield or defend. Isn't that a beautiful definition? To be for one, to be on one's side, to favor and further one's cause. So if you want to look at where we get the word hyper, hyperactive, 
it's uh, a little more energy than everyone else, so it's more than, and that would still be accurate. However, the idea is a lot richer when it comes to the understanding that the Holy Spirit is actually the one that does the hyper work of God for us. You see, Jesus Christ in body is actually seated at the right hand of the Father, and it is better for us that he go there. He made intercession for us. He entukanod for us. He stood in our place, but there is one who will hooper entukano, and he will enable you to live this out. And that's the Holy Spirit. The shadow of the superintending father. So in Psalm 91 from the Septuagint, which would be in the Greek, so we're dealing with a similar word choice. That's why I chose the Septuagint here to show you this. In the Septuagint, the concept is he that dwells in the help of the highest. See, it, typically we would understand as he who dwells in the shadow of the Most High. But the shadow is the same idea of the hooper entuchano. It's that presence of God that you allow him to do the working. And he who dwells in the help, what's, what's the Holy Spirit known as? The helper. He who dwells in the help of the highest shall, shall sojourn, shall live his life, shall make his journey under the shelter of the God of heaven. Well, there's our picture. How is it done? It's done in the Holy of Holies. It's done by the power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God who overshadows us. Well, how would you get to the presence of God? How would you get there? It is better that I go to be with the Father for you are in me and I will bring you there and I will seat you in heavenly places. Make your request known unto the Father. Here's what I want you to ask him. Ask for the Holy Spirit. Ask for the Holy Spirit to hooper and to your life, to enable you to live a life that otherwise would be impossible. Bending the bow of steel. Here's Charles Spurgeon talking about the hooper and to of the Holy Spirit. Suppose it be a time of war centuries back. Old English warfare was then conducted by bowmen to a great extent. Here is a youth who is to be initiated in the art of archery, and therefore he carries a bow. It is a strong bow and therefore very hard to draw. Indeed, it requires more strength than the urchin can summon to bend it. Urchin means young boy. See how his father teaches him. Put your right hand here, my boy, and place your left hand so, and now pull. And as the youth pulls, his father's hands are on his hands, and the bow is drawn. The lad draws the bow, aye, but it is quite as much his father too. We cannot draw the bow of prayer alone. Sometimes a bow of steel is not broken by our hands, for we cannot even bend it. And then the Holy Ghost puts his mighty hand over ours and covers our weakness so that we draw. And lo, what splendid drawing of the bow it is then. The bow bends so easily, we wonder how it is. Away flies the arrow, and it pierces the very center of the target. For he who, gives, he who giveth has won the day, but it was his secret might that made us strong, and to him be the glory of it. The sculpture. Now, for those of you that were here for my message on Michelangelo's uh, workshop uh, back earlier this year, you'll recognize this. In Florence, Italy, there was a commission, uh, and it was an impossible commission. It was a 20-foot-tall slab of marble. The Florentine government had had it for 100 years, and two famous artisans had attempted to take this slab of marble and make it a true piece of art. And yet both of them had failed. So two artists beforehand, before Michelangelo adopted the marble slab, the impossible 20-foot-tall marble slab known as the giant. 
That's actually what it was referred to as, the giant. It was the impossible. No artist, even Leonardo da Vinci, was actually given the opportunity to make an assessment of the marble and to give his suggestion of how it should be made into a piece of art. But the goal was to actually sculpt a picture of David in it. It's impossible. You know what these other sculptors actually had, had holes in it? I mean, you would have, you would have to work not only with a very thin piece of slab to go that tall is nearly impossible, but then you have the imperfections of those that have gone before you and marred it. Welcome to the Christian life. There are those that have gone before us that have marred the marble. Do you know that you inherited a marred piece of marble? And God says, yeah, out of that, I'm going to uh, bring forth the picture of the son of David. Uh, How are you going to do that? That's impossible. And so God gives us a hammer and a chisel. He says, good luck. You see, you can try all you want. However, you're a novice. You don't know even what it should look like. You cannot see that marble and envision the perfection of the son of David, of Jesus Christ. You don't even know what he looks like. You weren't there when he walked the earth. How in the world are you going to do this? You need some help. The sculpture. The massive block of imperfect marble. The young sculptor, us. The commission, do it. And if you don't do it, you die. (laughs) That's sort of what the Bible gives. It's like, yeah, the impossible commission. Yeah, but if you don't do it, sorry, you'll be separated from me for all eternity. Weeping, gnashing of teeth, stuff like that. Uh, And so we take our hammer and chisel, kink, kink, and everything we do seems to make it even worse. God... I can't do this. You see, the secret to the gospel is recognizing that God has made a means for the glory of God to be made manifest in this imperfect marble. But it is not you and your hammer and chisel that is actually the secret. The secret is a way has been made for you to access the hooper and tuchano of the Holy Spirit via the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He has made a way under the throne of grace. Come, come near, ask, ask. I need, I need the master artisan. I can't do this. The answer is yes and amen. The Holy Spirit, the helper that hooper entuchanos. That's what he does. The helper that hooper entuchanos. Sorry about that Greek word still lingering in our text here. I think I'm going to try and replace it out with something a little more easy to understand. But some of you are learning to read Greek. Look at that. You actually know what that word means. So here's a more simple way of saying it. So this is what it is. It's the master artisan that holds my hands to direct the hammer and the chisel. How are you going to do this? How are you going to bring out the beauty and the glory of King Jesus in and through your life? You can't. And yet, the gospel says... Actually, you can, but it's not because you can, it's because he can. And he can, hooper and tucano, and grab your hand which holds the hammer, and grab your hand which holds the chisel, and he can direct the movements so that what comes out of your obedience actually show forth, shows forth his glory. The confession of the young sculptor. <clears throat> So I don't know how many of you have gotten to this point yet in your sculpting efforts. I, I don't know what I'm doing. You, you try and live the Christian life. You try and live the Christian life in agreement with Scripture. 
It's one thing. I mean, you can go after the emergent postmodern gospel today and say, oh, yeah, burp and scratch your way to heaven. Anyway, everyone gets there anyways. It doesn't really matter. Well, that's an easy way of doing it. And so if you want to choose that method, yeah, it could appear that you're doing a really good job because there's no standard. There's no degree of excellence. There's no definition of righteousness anymore. There's no understanding of obedience. There's no call upon the soul. There's no conviction anymore. But the Holy Spirit is convicting us to say that isn't what Jesus looks like. You see, O church that is meant to reveal the glory, that isn't the glory. That isn't what he looks like. And he will convict the church. He will change us. He cares about the glory of King Jesus. So I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know a thing about sculpting. I don't even know what I'm trying to sculpt. Think about it. Could you imagine trying to sculpt a picture of Jesus and yet having never seen him? Good luck. And so you could make something and try and convince everyone, yeah, this is what Jesus looks like. And then someone who knows Jesus better could say, I don't think he had a nose uh, that looked like that. And you oh, sure he did, sure he did. You see, the Holy Spirit testifies amongst the body in an agreement to say, that's Jesus. That's his love. That's his humility. We recognize it when we see it. That's his patience. That's the way my God works. As I always like to say, classic God. Well, that's God, all right. How, how would I know that? Well, when you spend time around God, you begin to recognize classic God. Someone's feeling convicted. Someone's in a very low point in life, and they're crying. I go, oh, and I'm like, you're in a great spot. And someone's like, what do you mean it's a great spot? Yeah, you see, God loves you too much to allow you to keep living the way you were. He brought you here so he could do something with you. Classic God. The promise of the master artisan. Now, here's what's amazing. Remember the ask? The ask is based on a promise. I know what I'm doing, he says. I know everything about sculpting. I know precisely what it is you need to sculpt. And so we're like, great, wonderful, God. So I'll just keep working over here, and maybe I one day will be like you. No, that's not how you become like Christ. That isn't how the marble is changed into the picture of the glory of heaven. God keeps talking. I will be a very present help in your time of need. When you don't know what to do, know that I will hold the chisel and I will direct you with the delicacy and the exactitude of a master artisan in order that you may sculpt as you must and in order that you, the world may see the glory and perfection of the son of David in and through this block of imperfect marble. The conundrum. That's an impossible to answer question. So we have a conundrum. I must sculpt, but I don't know how to sculpt. I must pray, but I don't know how to pray. You see, we are called to pray. We are called to live out a grand life. And yet, what is the first thing we begin to realize? Wait a minute. I don't know how to do this. And Elijah's like heading up in his chariot. And we're like, uh, excuse me. I think there's something I need. Could you leave that mantle behind? You see, there is something that you need. And until you recognize and have an acute sense of need for it, well, then the hooper entuchano doesn't work. You see, you must stop trying to do it in your own pocket strength. And you must begin to call on that which is only in his possession. God, you have what I need. I don't have it, but you do. And so in faith and by faith, you ask for it. And the answer is yes and amen. So I must pray, but I don't know how to pray. Romans 8 for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs. 
You're going to see this word groans three different times in this little passage. So we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So that last line is one of the most critical lines in our understanding as Christians. Let me read it again. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What's the context for this? There is a weakness that we are carrying around. We don't want that weakness, and yet we have this weakness. We know how we ought to live, but we don't know how to live it. We know that we ought to be praying, but we don't know even how to pray. And so God has given us that which we need. The hooper and tukanoing work, sorry to add my own little uh, end to that, of the Holy Spirit is what enables us to do the work of the hammer and the chisel and to actually see this marble slab begin to take shape that out of our lives will begin to grow an ever-increasing picture and image of the Son of God. And yet, one of the key things here is, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. You know that, here's, here's what I would say to you. Every chisel movement that we make in agreement with God to say, I want to do what you've asked me to do. And so you hit upon the marble, even if your strike be imperfect in yourself. When Hudson is holding the putter, it may have been aimed over here. And it was going to hit his shoe or go out, you know, into the bush over there. And yet when daddy oversees it, he takes and compensates for that which Hudson in his weakness would have done. And actually causes Hudson's movement of obedience to actually drive that ball where it should go. And so even when the enemy comes in to harm, the winds blow, the various elements around us begin to conspire to take that ball and to hinder it from entering into that hole. What does God do? He takes even the wind that blows. And even though Hudson would have hit it into the bush, the wind would have driven it in the lake. What happens with the wind and Hudson's movement together, all those things with God superintending it, drives it right into the hole. You see, God wins. Every time he strikes it, it goes precisely where he intends it, even when the enemy is attempting to dupe us, attempting to re redirect, attempting to harm. God, hooper entuchanos, the whole affair. The groaning of the saints, the plea of the soul. You see, when we say the groaning, I don't know how many of you have had the groan. I don't know how familiar you are. I know that I am very familiar with the groan that it's talking about here. I have had times where I'm, I get into my time of prayer, I'm down on my knees, and all that comes out is a wheeze. Oh, God, I, I, love you. I, have, 
I have nothing. And so I actually remember this scripture, and I'll make a groaning sound. Huh? It's my groan. It's my prayer. And I'm saying, God, take that. Translate it. Use it. Because I don't know what to pray. But will you take my pole into the bowl? Will you take my putt-putter? Will you direct this groan to your ends? Because I don't know what to do right now, but you do. And I trust that. So the groaning of the saint is the plea of the soul. It's the unutterable grief of the inner man. The wordless cry, the sign prayer. It's a groan. You know, some people call it the fetal position. I typically call it the dead bug position, where you are out of strength. You are literally laying on the floor of something, whether it's your room, your living room, your kitchen. I've probably been in every room in my house at some point in time in the dead bug position. God, I, I'm, I'm at my end. And God sort of looks over and says, perfect. Now I get all the credit. You see, when Eric is at his strong point, I'll notice, just as a trend in my life, I don't call on God the way I do when I'm weak. Isn't that a funny thought? That's why out of weakness, the strength of God is made manifest. In strength, the strength of God isn't made manifest because oftentimes we see the strength of a man when he's strong. But when we're weak, God's evidenced more clearly. So the groaning of the apprentice. You're the apprentice. You're the guy or the girl that has the hammer and the chisel and the big slab of marble. And it's a real groan. Uh, The desperate swing of the hammer upon the marble. The agony of the young sculptor to see the evidence of Christ out of this imperfect marble slab. The Florentine government is starting to weigh on you. They keep checking, sending over their deputies, their different... uh, uh, government officials to say, how's it coming? Are you getting the image of uh, David out of this thing? I'm in my creative stage. Uh, I'm still thinking about how this is going to work. Well, you better hurry up. Have you ever felt that pressure? It's the Christian life pressure. It doesn't come from God, but it's there. You see, God has a movement, and he wants to keep us growing, but then there's this condemning weight that oftentimes comes in and questions and looks at our marvel and says, so what's that? And yet, when we immediately discredit that voice and come back to God and say, God, I know it doesn't look very impressive. You are what is impressive. You see, the concept of Christian perfectionism has tripped up a lot of people. If someone were to say, so Eric, do you believe that your marble slab is perfect? That you perfectly reveal Jesus Christ? Because you say you believe in Jesus. Aren't you supposed to be perfect as he is perfect? That's a good question. I would say, I am clothed in the one that is perfect. And therefore, I have access unto his perfect presence because of his perfect work. However, underneath that clothing is a very imperfect, unfinished project called Eric Ludi. And as a result, I am going to call upon my perfect father who will send forth the perfecting spirit. And he will come and dwell inside of me and begin to direct the process and hooper and tuchano, the process of sanctifying me or making me like You see, I'm not just like him. I'm unlike him. He's holy, holy, holy. I'm unholy, unholy, unholy. But when I turn in my unholy state to his holiness, and I turn unto his work on that cross, and I cry out and say, please save me from my unholy, unholy, unholiness, then what he does is he begins the work of transformation. And so we have a groan in the process, though. Make me like you, Jesus. I'm so tired of not showing you. 
I don't want to speak this way anymore. I want this tongue to be used in the manner that you would use a tongue. I want these eyes to look where you would look. I want these ears to only hear what you're speaking. I want this mind to meditate upon things above, not things of this earth. I want my heart to be burdened with your burdens and not with my selfish cravings. I want these hands to be used for your glory, my feet to go into all the world. I want my life to show Jesus. It's a groaning. It's a groaning of the apprentice. And so to the best of our degree, what do we do? We begin to obey. And we begin to do what we do. However, the secret to Christianity working is that you yield that hammer and that chisel. And you say, God, I will swing, but I need you to direct the swings. The master artistry of the Holy Spirit The chisel of spirit-governed prayer. So now I'm going to liken our chisel, our hammer and chisel, to prayer. If you do not pray, what happens to the marble? Nothing. See, if you do not strike blows against it, nothing will happen. Now there are other hammers and chisels. We call it obedience. There's, There's various other things in the Christian life that actually affect our marble. Okay, But one of the most significant and large players in this process of shaping us and others into the likeness of the king is prayer. The Holy Spirit directs our chisel. Moses, now I want you to think about this. When you talk about prayer, now some of us could say, so do we ask whatsoever? How do we pray? Well, the key is to understand the Holy Spirit is the one who is in stride with what Jesus wants accomplished on this earth. And Jesus is in perfect agreement with the Father and what the Father's agenda is for this earth. So when we agree with the Holy Spirit, We are in stride with Jesus and in stride with the Father. Therefore, we're in agreement with God. His will and our will are being blended together as one. And so when we submit to the Holy Spirit and we say, Holy Spirit, I need you to hooper and tuchano my praying. I don't want to just come together and just have a list that I go through. But I want to lay my life before you and say, I know I'm going to swing this. But as I swing it, could you begin to direct me? Could you show me what you're working on? You see, we oftentimes have an idea that we're working on the nose. When in actuality, it's the right thumb. We thought, and God's like, I know, I know what you thought. However, when we continued in obedience, out came a hand, and we thought he was shaping the face. You see, our prayers are like blows upon the marble, and yet, though our understanding is imperfect of what God is doing, when we are in agreement with God, he's always doing something. Our blows are not wasted. Our prayers are not insignificant in the process. If they are submitted to the Holy Spirit. So listen to this. Moses prayed that he might enter the land of Canaan. Is that a reasonable prayer? The promised land? Moses asked God if he could enter into the land of Canaan. But God denied him and instead led him to Mount Pisgah. Now, you could say, well, that's an illustration of God not answering prayer. No, that's an illustration of Hooper and Tuchano. That is God superintending Moses' praying to lead to his ends. You know that God gets tremendous glory out of this situation? You know that Moses is symbolic of something. Moses may not have understood this in his day any more than we oftentimes understand all the details of our life and what is being said to the world around us in and through our yieldedness. However, Moses yielded unto God. He had a desire and he laid it before God. God answered. He took the chisel and the blow upon the marble and directed it. And as a result, revealed something for us to see. Do you know that the law, which is a picture of Moses, cannot lead us into the land of promise? It's only Joshua, Yeshua, the same name as Jesus, that can take us there. 
The old covenant is not sufficient. It's a new covenant by Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus that can do it. There's a picture in the Old Testament that is there because Moses submitted. He asked. It was a hammer blow upon the marble, and yet God directed it to reveal something Moses didn't understand at the time. The man set free. This is the Gadarenes. Remember that demon-possessed man where Jesus casts out the demon? He goes into the pigs, and the pigs go over the cliff. Uh Uh-huh. The man set free by Jesus, he made a request. He asked Jesus something. Look at what he asked. Requested to go with Jesus. Uh, could I join your company? Could I go with you? Now that's a reasonable request, you have to admit. Is there anything wrong with that? No. But Jesus did not permit him. But said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. You see, the man made the request, but the Holy Spirit directed it over here and worked on a different part of the marble than the man thought. You see, the man had to submit. He had to trust. Did God make the best decision? Absolutely, and always. You see, our job is to strike the marble in faith. It's God's job to define how that strike works upon the marble. He's the artisan, not us. He's the one that knows how to bring out the beauty and the glory of Jesus, not us. Paul intended to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit it. And instead, he heard in a dream the cries of the man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. Was Paul's intention to go into Bithynia? What was he going to do there? Twiddle his thumbs? No, he's going to share the gospel. Hey, God, don't you care about the people in Bithynia? But the Spirit did not permit it. You see, the Spirit of God knows what is needed. Our job is to submit. And of course, all you have to do is go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus would have an inclination to say, Father, may this cup pass me, but not my will, but thine. There will be moments in your life where you would, in the human sense, ask for a cup to pass. However, when the Holy Spirit, what you say is, Lord, not my will, but yours. You know how to bring out the glory of yourself out of this marble. You do it. Just this morning, Little Abby Rose uh, was watching a Torchlighters video. I think it was Corey Tenboom. It was Corey Tenboom. Corey had just lost her father and her sister in the concentration camp. So Betsy Tenboom had just died. And her prayer was, God, let me die too. I can't live here anymore. I can't continue in this suffering. I've lost everything dear to me. I have no place to go after this. God didn't answer that prayer the way Corey intended. But Corey was used all over the world to share the gospel in ways that other people could never share it because she lost her father and her sister in that concentration camp. You see, in those moments of anguish and agony, we sometimes don't see clearly. We're beclouded with tears, and it's called a groan. Our groans are being translated and directed by the Holy Spirit to ends that benefit us even, but ultimately benefit the glory of God at the highest levels. That is what we submit to. What is the Holy Spirit doing? The Holy Spirit reveals to us the outline, the shape, the features, and the loveliness of the Son of David. You would not see Jesus without the Holy Spirit. So how do you even know what is being crafted? Because the Holy Spirit is revealing it to you. The Holy Spirit shows us how we ought to chisel and with how much force we ought to swing our hammer. He leads us with perfect exactitude, with precision and beautiful artistry. What's amazing is though he is the master artisan, do you know that he's constantly crafting us more and more into his likeness as an artist? 
And so just, if I'm going to overshadow Hudson, you know that I'm going to actually correct his feet position, I'm going to correct his handhold to maximize its efficiency in hitting the ball? And yet, he, still, it, there is no point along the way where I can retract myself and have Hudson just turn in. In the spiritual speaking, in the spiritual sense of this, God must always hooper into Kano. Though we are learning to be more sharp and more excellent in all of our movements as an artist, throughout our life, in the process of shaping this marble, we must be submitted to the Holy Spirit. And at never one juncture should we escape from that shadow and try and do this on our own. Oh God, I think I've gotten this down now. I can, I can craft this myself. No, the first thing we would do is mar the next piece of marble. The Holy Spirit shows us how we ought to chisel and with how much force we ought to swing our hammer. He leads us with perfect exactitude, precision, and beautiful artistry. You know, some of us start with the chisel upside down and we're hammering the wrong end. Some of us have the hammer and we're taking, you know, the wrong end of it and beating it. And God says, no, let's turn that around. No, use the head of the hammer. No, you use it this way. You see, he's training us the way a father would a child. And so the Holy Spirit is constantly refining our praying. He's refining how we live, how we do the work of the kingdom. The Holy Spirit leads us to the workshop, and even when our eyes are clouded with tears, our hands are weakened with trembling, and our vision for the finished work is marred. You ever had those moments when you can't remember why you're doing what you're doing? What am I doing here on earth? Why am I going through this difficulty? What is this all about? He leads us to swing with groaning hammer blows, sighs upon the sole of the marble. And he takes these most precious moments of weakness to reveal the most beautiful attributes of our David's glory. It's in and through our weakness that he reveals most powerfully his sovereign artistry. So out of this chunk of marble known historically as the giant came forth what many would consider the greatest piece of art in history. It's the statue, the sculpture of David. And, you know, if you were going to ask me, so Eric, is it really an amazing piece? I've never seen it. Face to face, supposedly it's 17 feet tall. So, out of a 20 foot piece of marble, it's sculpted. And you know, I guess from every famous artist that has ever studied this, they say that's impossible. You couldn't do it. Just the thinness of the marble would make it impossible to have a 17 foot high sculpture like this. And yet, here it stands for hundreds and hundreds of years, just sort of a spectacle of the impossible. You see, there is something that must be revealed. And the only way for us to reveal it is for us to submit. Three options of the chiseling saint. Two of the three options stink. First option, you have a piece of imperfect marble. You have a hammer and a chisel, but you don't want to do the wrong thing here. Remember that one guy that got entrusted with a talent of gold? He didn't want to mess up. He didn't want to do it wrong, so he buried it. Uh, God wasn't too happy. Don't swing the hammer lest you mar the marble. Well, that's a reasonable thought. Can't you see some of us coming to that conclusion? How about we just keep the marble intact? So when the Son of God comes back to this earth, he can sort of see at least I have the marble. It's in my workshop. And yet that's grace that you've been entrusted. You've been given the opportunity to showcase the glory of God. What did you do with that grace? You buried it. Uh, Not a good scene. Don't do this. So this is not the right thing. To set down your hammer just so you don't make a mistake, that's not how we do it. Second option, swing the hammer softly and delicately so that 
if you are incorrect in your chisel position, the damage will be limited. Most of us are paralyzed in our praying because we're so afraid of presuming. We're so afraid of praying wrong. We're so afraid of doing the wrong thing. It's going to mar what God is intending to do. So what do we do? Do nothing? Or ding, 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 ding. Ding, 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 ding. Little chip after the whole day's work. Chink falls out. You see, that's not how it's going to be done. You must be aggressive. And yet you need to allow the Holy Spirit to take your willingness to truly hammer this marble. And so here's option number three, which I would highly encourage. Swing the hammer and trust that he will direct the chisel. And take our groaning swings and work and work in and through them a picture of glory and majesty. Pray! That's what you're supposed to do. But I don't know how to pray. Pray! Well, I don't know what to say. Groan! Well, I do know how to do that. You see, the, in our weakness, our feeble weakness, sometimes it's only a wheeze. But as we continue to wheeze, did you know that words will come? As we continue in that groaning, dead bug, fetal position of prayer, that out of that weakness comes the greatest strength. I don't know if you've ever seen this in your life. My life is not summed up in my achievements. My strength in my life has come out of my weaknesses, my struggles, my trials, my tribulations. That's what's made me who I am. I am who I am this day standing before you because of challenges and weaknesses and trials that the Holy Spirit, the living God, has walked me through. That's what's made me who I am. And so... This is what makes Jesus come out of our life. Pray, but I don't know what to pray. I'm afraid of praying wrongly. You will pray wrongly if you don't pray. Pray, groan, wheeze. Allow the Spirit of God to take those movements and begin to direct them. And even if you hit it sideways with the hammer, and you know, and later, you know, a year later, like, I can't believe how I used to hit this piece of marble. What you'd look back is that very same spot that you once hit, and you'd be in awe. He does all things well. He even took my ridiculous use of that chisel upside down and turned it into the eyelashes of David. How did he do that? Yeah, he's God. When we get to heaven, what are we going to be saying? He does all things well. We'll look back and look at everything he's done, every chisel movement throughout history, and we'll say, he did that? Wow! The strong but submitted swing of the hammer. God, I trust that as I swing imperfectly, you will direct the chisel perfectly. You know there's never a wasted swing? Ever. In the history of all faith-filled praying, never has there ever been a wasted swing of the hammer and a movement of the chisel upon the marble. God will turn all of those things to good for those who love him. I may think you are doing the cheekbones, but if you are carving the earlobe out of my swing, then I say, amen. Have you ever felt that? It's like, what's God's will in this matter? Pray. Pray in faith that God would get glory. But, but I sort of need to know more than that. Well, sometimes we think he's working on the cheekbones, so what should we pray? Pray about the cheekbones. Pray the best you know to pray. And if it turns out that he was working on the earlobe, say amen. God, you do all things well. You see, he knows how to lead our lives. I may groan for the chin to finally be revealed, but if you are still crafting the neck in and through my sighing strokes, I will declare not my will but thine. This one thing I know, when your almighty hand rests upon my chisel, my swinging will always bring about your glory. 
Therefore, I will swing, though it be imperfectly, I will swing. And you, O master intercessor, you are the one who is building this image of the dear son out of this imperfect slab of marble. The burden, the prayer of the spirit. I don't know how to describe what a burden is. I just know what it's like to have one. God has taken a man who could care less about other people, and he's made me care. But it's not me that cares, it's him that's caring in me. And so I find myself concerned about people. I I, I find myself burdened for the lost. I didn't even care about them. Suddenly I care about the persecuted church? What's, What's going on? I care about orphans and widows and those that are underprivileged, those that don't have an advocate. What's happening to me? You see, as I yield myself to the hooper and tuchano of the Holy Spirit, he begins to change me to showcase him. And I begin to have his affections. I begin to have his thoughts. I begin to have the mind of Christ. And so now my praying is even sharper. Why? Because my thoughts are in agreement with his. So as I begin to think about the persecuted church, God says, pray that. As I begin to care about the orphan, he says, pray that. I begin to care about someone's marriage who's failing. He says, pray that. Pray. He begins to teach us how this works. Okay, I'm seeing this. Except he's the one doing it. I trust that he leads me. It's not just a list. It's a burden that he begins to give me and you pray. How long should you pray? Until the burden lifts. It's a hard thing to explain for those of you that have never had a burden on your soul, but you could pray and sometimes it's one minute and it's sufficient. Sometimes it's one year. Sometimes it might be 20 years. Sometimes 2,000. Do you carry the burden for the return of Jesus Christ? Yeah, the Spirit of God's been carrying that for 2,000 years. Sickness, lostness, need of any kind. These are some hard things. When you approach these issues, sickness. Someone's 95 years old, and they have something that if it's not dealt with soon, they're going to die. And yet they're a Christian. They love Jesus Christ. How do you pray? Those are some of the worst, most challenging situations. Because if you pray for them to be healed, you almost feel like you're doing them a disservice. It's like if you were the 95-year-old about ready to go into the presence of Christ, wouldn't you say, hey, guys, Could you pray that I just get out of here? (laughs) How do you pray? Well, pray. Pray for the maximum glory of God to be revealed in and through the remaining moments of this life, if they be few or many. That this life would showcase the glory of King Jesus, whether through sickness or in health. But you can pray boldly for health. And guess what? If God chooses something different in that situation, you boldly say amen. You boldly agree with God in every situation. You trust that the Holy Spirit, hooper and tucanos, and never disagrees with his word, ever. Lostness. Oh, it's a hard one. Do I pray for lost souls? What if God isn't after them? If you have a burden for a lost soul, follow it. Because that's a God burden. You know that if you, you don't know Christ, you don't care about lost souls? And when you're dead to the Holy Spirit, you know that you don't care about lost souls? So if you're caring about lost souls, if you're caring about someone out there, pray it. However, sometimes the way God works is quite extraordinary. You're praying for a guy here, person one or thing one, and then thing two is back here. You're praying for thing one, and guess what? The whole while you were looking at thing one, God was directing it right over his head, and it was landing on thing two. Thing two is suddenly shouting, hallelujah, and thing one is still belting you in the nose. What was that? God says, I do all things well. You see, we only see but through a glass dimly. 
We don't see clearly on all matters, but we do see clearly in his nature, in his person, in his faithfulness. All that we must believe, we see clearly on. That which is unnecessary for us to know in detail, we oftentimes don't know in detail. And he says, do you trust me? And we say, yes, I do. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But. We may not know what to pray, but we do know to pray. Isn't that an interesting thought? We may not know what to pray, but we do do know we should be praying. A.K.A. we may not know what God is carving, but we know we must swing the hammer. So how should we swing that hammer? Well, with all our might. The lesson of Joash. Remember we talked about the end of last session. We talked about the parting of Elijah. This is the parting of Elisha. And so now you have the man who literally did double the miracles of Elijah, and he's dying. Joash remembers the story. He's the king at the time of Israel, and so he comes in to the apartment, whatever it is that Elisha is uh, waning in his last moments of life in, and just listen. Now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness, whereof he died, and Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him, And wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. You know, that quote is only one other time in Scripture, and that's what Elisha said to Elijah. You see, he wants something. Before you leave, oh, mighty prophet, leave me with something. Don't leave me without what you could impart to me. Now, I don't know if he thinks that that one statement is going to trigger something, like it's a mantra, and if you say the right words at the parting of something, then you get the double portion. But you can see what he's thinking. And Elisha said unto him, Take bow and arrows. And he took unto him bow and arrows. And he said unto the king of Israel, Put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. And Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. And Elisha, then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance. And the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek till thou have consumed them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said unto the king of Israel, Smite the ground. Now, We'll just stop there for a second. Don't read ahead. So you're going through some kind of test here, and you're beginning to recognize that. So, okay, shoot the arrow. All right, here, take this arrow in your hand. Strike the ground. Now, what are you going to do? Strike the ground. So what does that mean to you? Well, let's read. And he said unto the king of Israel, smite upon the ground. And he smote three times and stayed. Stopped. Now, what, what, what do you think? It's like, I'm pretty impressed with that. He struck three times. I wouldn't have thought about that. I would have just struck it once. Listen to this. And he smote three times and stayed, and the man of God was wroth with him. Elisha was actually deeply upset and said, Thou should have smitten five or six times. Then hadst thou smitten Syria till thou hadst consumed it, whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but three times. And Elisha died, and they buried him. Isn't it amazing how the Bible just sort of cuts to the chase? God slows down the camera, shows you a scene, and then says, yeah, and he died. Why did you need to know that? You see, there's a test. There's a proving. There is something that wants to come down. There is a mantle that has been imparted. But there's a test. Ask. Ask. And we ask small, or do we ask big? Do you recognize the bigness of your call? Do you recognize the bigness of your need? Ask God-sized prayers. Take that arrow and strike the ground. What do you want to do now? 
not just five or six times. Here's my encouragement to you. Strike the ground until the Holy Spirit grabs your wrist and says, that's enough. You see, God says pray. And I don't care if you even know what to pray. Groan if you must, but pray. You start praying until he grabs your wrist and says, enough. Now let's pray for this. You see, what you do know to pray for, pray for it. What you do know to do, do. Take the arrows and strike the ground, a.k.a. take the hammer and strike the chisel. When asked to swing the hammer, don't swing it weakly. Don't swing it hesitatingly, but swing it decidedly and swing it until the burden to swing is relieved. And the master artisan says, that is enough, dear apprentice. This is a statement that's been going over and over and over again in my soul. Now, you're dealing with a guy who strongly believes in the promises of God. And when I go after something in prayer, I go after it in faith. I don't go after it saying, oh, I'm probably just wrong in what I'm praying for. I go after it decidedly with the clarity that I have, I go after it. And I don't mince words when I do it. So I'm not talking about being mealy-mouthed with God here and saying, well, just whatever you want to do. When you have a bead on what you sense God is wanting to do, go after it. Go after it strongly, decidedly, for the glory of the king. However, at every juncture along the way, you hold it loosely to say, I am but the apprentice. You are the master artisan. And what you do with these blows is technically up to you. I think I know what you're doing right now. To the best of my understanding, this is what I would guess. And I could be right. But you could be doing something greater. Here's the key. God never does something lesser. He always goes above and beyond what we could ever ask or think. So you think he's doing something amazing. Well, he's actually doing something really amazing. So for his maximum glory, at every juncture, this is your prayer. For the maximum glory of Jesus Christ. That's what you care about. You don't care about your maximum comfort, your maximum ease. You care about his maximum glory. And so in your praying at every juncture, when you are striking hammer to chisel in agreement with God, it's under your breath, even in the groan itself, for your maximum glory. Submitted to the greater answer in every situation. So you go after what you know to go after. And yet, if something happens different than what you would have perceived, guess what you keep your eyes open for? God, what are you doing in all this? Because I know it's bigger. America looks like it's going downhill and fast. And yet, you know, I've thought about this. It seems like a black hole to pray for America. It's like, oh, it's just going to go down the the hole anyways. You know, it's, it's like past its expiration date. There's no way that this can turn. You know that if you have a burden for this country, pray. You know that you have a responsibility. For some reason, we're here. How we got here, I can't explain, but we got stuck here. This is our watch. This is when we're here. This is our church. This is when we're here. We have an instrument here to change the course of history. And if this church caught the vision of praying, even if it was imperfect praying, even if there was a lot of sighing and groaning, the world would indeed be changed. And even if America does go down the toilet, our prayers will not be wasted. Not one of them will fall to the ground unutilized by the Spirit of God. God will get his due. He will accomplish his ends. 
Our job is to trust him. Our job is to be his vessel through which he can swing that hammer and hit that chisel. He chooses to use us. He has condescended to do exactly that. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Hooper and Tucano, the Holy Spirit that works in us to accomplish something far beyond what you in your own mind can envision right now. I dream big, and yet the more I study Scripture, the more I realize, actually, I don't. God dreams big. I dream pathetic. My ideas, for instance, my big prayer this week, I was thinking, God, okay, if I'm going to do a message like this, I want to start asking a big prayer. How about this? That God would enable me to lead one person a week to him. And then I stopped, and I thought about that, and I thought, that's pathetic. John Hyde, over in China, for one year, asked for one soul a day. Oh, I'm sorry, India. He asked for one soul a day for an entire year. And India is a lot more difficult territory than America. What a day! And he got it. In fact, he got more than 365. So then the next year, he went after two a day. The next year, three. I don't know if he ever got past three. Three! Oh, he got up to four? Four a day! For a year! And what, what was my big, bold, audacious ask? One a week? See, I'm trying to get something that sounds more Eric Ludi-esque. Something little my size. You know, like a, uh, a little mini car, what are those called? A, a matchbox car? Size of what God could do? That's how we tend to pray. I want us to begin to allow God to be God. Thank you so much for listening to part two of this two-part message by Pastor Eric Ludi, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.